check. We on? A Canadian friend of mine sent me this uh, photograph from Canada. And uh, before you see the photograph, it says, um, Canadians rioting over something or other. And you go to the picture, and there's a guy standing by himself, and he's holding up a sign, and the sign says, I am somewhat concerned about this. <laughs> Canadians are the, uh, the compromisers of the, of the world. If there's a way to reach a middle ground that will make everybody happy, Canadians live for that. There's a joke, which you won't get, but to Canadians it's really funny. Why did the Canadian cross the road? To get to the middle. <laughs> They're also the most compliant people in the universe. How do you get 150 Canadians out of a swimming pool on the hottest day of the year? Okay, everybody out of the pool. <laughs> you laugh. You've never lived there. <laughs> yeah. What happened to me was when I lived in Canada, anyone that, that met me, like a new person that met me, said, what part of the States are you from? Because I don't have a Canadian personality, so they forced me to leave. But down here, oh, I fit right in. Yes, I do. Yes, I. The great compromiser has migrated south. What do they call a Canadian who sneaks across the border illegally? A frostback. Listen, a lot of people pay for this kind of stand-up. <laughs> Not much in Canada. These are big jokes in Canada. They're, they're lead balloons here in the U.S. of A. All right. We're on the Grace Series, and uh, John said you can teach whatever you want. So I decided to teach whatever I want. So today's message is entitled, Why is Grace So Amazing? We sing Amazing Grace. We talk about Amazing Grace. Um, a grace is like... Um, it, it just keeps coming up in conversation over and over and over again. It's like a Christian buzzword. And sometimes I think it, it loses its meaning because we say the short little word so often, we don't meditate or think about what it actually means. Why is it so amazing? I have discovered, and I hope you're not in the second category, but I think a lot of us are. And I think we kind of phase in and out of the second category. The first category, there's only two kinds of Christians on the subject of grace that I meet. The first, sub, the, the, the first category is the subject of grace comes up and their faces light up and they get this happy, joyous look and they say, yeah, yeah, grace, yeah. And then the second category, it comes up and the person kind of just shrugs and says, yeah, yeah, grace, that's great. Like it's a, some sort of theological concept, but it doesn't light them up. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. You ever seen those two reactions? Yeah. One, person, one person is just thrilled, and the other person says, oh, well, you know, yeah, it's a good thing. I guess that's, that, that's a good thing. For some people, grace is the whole point. For others, it's just another good idea. 
So why the difference? All right, here's what I want to suggest to you, and the Bible bears this out. Grace is only wonderful after you have truly seen the immensity of your own sin. It really, it's actually, guys, it's actually pr- directly and perfectly proportional. Your appreciation of what he did on the cross for you is directly proportional to your awareness, not merely conceptually, experientially, your awareness of your own sin, which is never a pleasant subject. You have never signed up for a weekend workshop that said, come and have the depths of your sin revealed. Come and enjoy seeing what you're really like in the eyes of God, and asterisks, and your wife or your husband. Nobody volunteers for that. Nobody says, you know, I'd really like to know the immensity of my own sin. In fact, it's the one thing we're maneuvering away from almost all the time. Man's first reaction to the awareness of his sin was what? In the Bible, early in the book. What was his first reaction? Cover up and go hide it. And that has been the human response to the awareness of our sin ever since. But to understand what grace really is, you have to come from the position of knowing what you were saved from. Do you get it? As Christians, we all acknowledge that we're sinners, but often it's in some sort of academic way. There's two reasons why we miss the point about sin, why we don't grasp the immensity of our sin. The first is that we're confused about the nature of sin, and the second is that we grade on the curve. We're going to look at the curve first, then we're going to look at the nature of sin. When I was a kid, see, I went to school before the curve. I did the first five or six years of schooling before the curve came into being. And in those days, you wrote an exam, and if you got less than 50%, you failed. Period. No excuses, because you were graded on an absolute standard, and 50 was the pass, and that's it. If you got 49, that's too bad. Were we ever relieved when the curve came into existence? I'm telling you, when the teachers explained the curve to us, there was a whole lot of really, really joyous students. Do you know how the curve works? It's called a bell curve, right, like this. And what it does is it says... There's an average kind of person. There's an average kind of student. And that average kind of student is in the chubby portion of the bell. And then some brilliant ones over here. And there's some challenged individuals on the other end. And it's not fair to grade on an absolute standard because what if it's a harsh test? What if it's an unfair test? The way we have to grade is by taking the average. And if you can find yourself somewhere in that chubby portion of the curve, you're really okay. Even though you got 30%, you're okay. And the relief of this was, 
Let's just be honest about ourselves, okay? The relief was, if you looked in the right direction, you could always find some losers worse than you. And that made you okay. Now, you could find on the other end, you could find those smart kids, but nobody liked them anyway. They were in the glee club, the chess club, the debating club, the American history club, or in Canada, the uh, let's look for a beaver club. There was all these clubs. Anyway, those intellectuals, those overachievers, they were strange anyway, so we can discount them. As long as you find yourself in the center of the curve, you are okay no matter how you really did on the test. Do you understand what I'm saying? All you guys grew up with the curve. And we have taken the curve and we have applied it to God's holiness. We now measure God's holiness on the curve. And we measure ourselves and our sin and our failures and our successes entirely on the curve. What this means is that you can always find some bigger sinner than you. Just turn on the TV. Jerry Springer. I'm not like any of those people on Jerry Springer. I'm okay. I'm on my way to heaven. I'm okay. What makes it possible for us to grade on the curve is that we are confused about the nature of sin. You can only grade on the curve if you measure sin against your performance. Stuff that you do wrong. If your definition of sin is the stuff that I do wrong, you can always find a bigger sinner than you. And hence, you can feel fine about yourself. And if you feel fine about yourself, you don't really need grace. And it's just not that amazing or not that wonderful. Do you see how the logic goes? But if we don't define sin that way, if we define it by what it is deep down inside, then it turns into this. The things that we do wrong are sins. The thing that causes us to do those wrong things is sin. And sin is an issue of our nature. And sin is not about the things we do. It's about a fundamental orientation to God which we have as human beings. Are you with me so far? Out of that orientation, out of that deeply held belief, we do wrong. Sins are just the result of this. Sin is much deeper. Sin is a particular attitude towards God and to your own self. And here is sin's attitude. Sin simply says this, I will do life my way. What's wrong with that? I mean, what's wrong with saying, I'm going to do life my way? In a godless universe, without a creator who made you, and designed you, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that attitude. But if you will accept that there is a God, and he is perfect, and he made you, and he made you for a purpose, and he made you for an intimate relationship of love with him, 
And that relationship will be the center of your life and pleasing him will be the center of your life. Then I will do life my way is a fundamental and complete negation of everything that he is and everything that he does and every plan that he has made. It is a complete pushing him away. Are you with me? Do you get it? Sin is this. Sin is essentially self-centeredness with regard to God. Now this is probably brushing some of us the wrong way because we have been raised in the last 20 years, just the last 20 to 30 years in this country with a complete focus on self. You know, there was even a magazine that came out, Self. Self-adornment, self-worship, self-improvement, going to the gym like a fiend so that you can look good. And I go to the gym five times a week and it doesn't work. (laughs) But I'm still struggling on that treadmill of self-acceptance. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have been marinated in a culture of self. So when somebody comes along and says to you, self-centeredness is a sin, it's hard to believe it. It doesn't make any sense. Wait a minute. Everybody I know is self-centered. And therein lies the problem. Because this is not an attitude which we decide to have This is an attitude we are born with. My aunt, my father's youngest sister of nine in the family, wrote a letter to my mother when I was a kid. And she just had her two children. They were about two and three years old. And she made a comment in her letter to my mother, and I was just like 10 or 12. I was just a kid. But the comment that she made about her children in that letter has haunted me ever since. She asked a question of my mother in this letter. She said, why is one of the first words they learn mine and one of the latest to learn yours? Every one of us is born with a human nature orientation to self-centeredness. And we need it trained out of us. But actually, when it's trained out of us, it's only dealing with the surface and the things that you can see and maybe we can get some good citizenship behavior out of these kids by stressing citizenship, telling them that it's not always good to be selfish, but underneath of those layers of correctness that we assume, there is still a part of us inside which is craving for control, demanding to be in charge all of the time and seeing everything and everyone as, as, as to how it affects me. That is human nature. It is the way people are. And all of our efforts at taming it, all of our efforts, 
in the society and the laws that we make and the way we attempt to train our children and the way we attempt self-control. All of these things ultimately fail because I'm trying to use reason and emotion within myself to defeat something that's even deeper than those things and even more fundamental than those things and even stronger than those things. Is the, is the picture negative enough? We need something. There was a song that Alvin Bishop wrote. Alvin Bishop was a blues guitar guy way back when. And he wrote a song, and one of the, he was talking about his alcohol problem. He was singing about his alcohol problem. And the, one of the lines of the chorus goes, My weakness is stronger than I am. Interesting way to put it, isn't it? <laughs> our propensity towards self-centeredness is the strongest thing in our personality in our human nature. The way we come from the womb. We're completely self-centered. We're born that way and we fight to maintain that self-centeredness and that self-determination. Listen to this. Romans 5, 10. Listen to this. For if when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? If we were God's enemies, you, you, need, you need to see this for what it is. Before you came to Jesus Christ, before you received his power to say no to yourself, you were God's enemy. That's a, guys, that's a really radical statement. What this means is that the people that you work with and the people in your neighborhood that don't know the Lord are God's enemies. Before you came to God, you were God's enemy. Well, look, either this is true and we need to understand human nature at a much deeper level, or else we throw out the whole Bible. Because the whole point of the Bible is predicated upon somehow saving us from our sin. And here's, here, here's another twist on this. We make a lot in our circle of the devil. In our branch of Christianity, we talk a lot about the devil's work, what, the, what Satan's trying to do to me, and how Satan is our enemy. Let me tell you something. Most of the time, he's not your problem. You're your problem. It's not Satan that's beating you up. It's you're a selfish fool. And you keep making selfish fool choices. And selfish fool choices just get you into deeper trouble and end up with a more messed up life. You're not a Most of us are not people Satan has to waste his energy on. You're going to mess up your own life. Really? We are our own worst enemies. Most of the time. We do the devil's work for him in our own hearts. Okay, here's the problem. This propensity towards self-centeredness and self-determination, this is the problem, survives conversion. It survives becoming a Christian. 
oh God, how I wish it were otherwise. Have you ever said to him, I've said to him so many times, God, why don't you just take my free will away so I stop doing these things? Why don't don't you just do something so I don't do these things anymore? Have you ever said that to him? Out of frustration? Because this old nature, what Paul calls the old man, the old human nature, the human nature we're born with, it survives conversion. Well, what's the point of conversion? Well, the point of conversion is this. Before you found Jesus, you were a slave to that selfish nature. You would struggle and try, but a whole lot of the time, your weakness was stronger than you were. You were a slave to it. Even when you wanted to do better, you found the default position, keep flipping your right back. Are there any gets it in the house? You know what I'm talking about? It's so frustrating. You were a slave. When Jesus comes to your life and he has died for your sins, he has destroyed the power of sin over you to where you're not a slave anymore. But he hasn't transformed you into a robot. All he's done is set you free from that compulsion. You still have to make choices. It's like, it's like somebody's a heroin addict and, and you, you've got this drug which will set them free from the cravings. They can take this drug that sets them free from the cravings and all of a sudden for the first time in 20 years they're free from the cravings and they feel fantastic. He still is going to see his buddies this afternoon who are cranking junk. He still has these influences. He still has to say no to it again. Now he's got the ability to say no to it. Now he's at a neutral place where he gets to exercise a free choice, but he still has to make a choice. And if he chooses, foolishly, to go back to what he was doing, he will be enslaved by it again. We're all heroin addicts, people. Our heroin is our self-will and our control and our self-centeredness. We're now free to say no to it but we don't automatically say no to it. And it's still craving. And it's still scratching at the vein. And it's still pushing. It's still asserting itself. Paul. Paul describes this struggle with the deepest part of himself in this way. Listen to it. Romans 7, 15 to 24. I don't understand what I do. Have you ever said that? I don't. Why did I do that? I don't. It was, it was so stupid. It was so destructive. It was so unfair. Why did I do that? For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. If I end up doing what I don't want to do, I'm just agreeing that God's law is true and good. As it is right now in me, it's no longer me doing it. It's the sin that's living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature, in my self-centeredness. I have the desire to do what's good. 
I can't carry it out. I don't do the good I want to do. I end up doing the evil I don't want to do. And this I keep doing. Now if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it. It's sin. It's this old nature living in me that does it. I find this law. Law. Inevitable consequence. I find this inevitable consequence at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, in my transformed spirit, in communion with the living God, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is at work in me. Now listen, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body subject to this death? People, has he overstated that? Or is this a true and accurate picture of the struggle that we live in to do what's right? It is. It is. Do you know one of the greatest gifts God can give you is bring you, to bring you to a place where you can use the word wretched about yourself? Real freedom doesn't come until you're disgusted with yourself. Until you can say, I'm completely wretched. Who's going to save me from myself? I don't need to be saved from Satan. I need to be saved from myself. That part of me that craves control, pride affirmation, my will, my way, if we're honest, we're going to recognize this struggle in our lives, because I do. Grace has given us a new nature. It's the nature of God living inside of us. It has the power to overcome our rebellious self-centeredness, but it does not happen automatically. The Holy Spirit does not overpower our will. He does not force us to choose God's will. We get to decide how much of the new nature we're going to experience. And we get to decide how much of the new nature is going to replace the old. This is the war we live in. The Holy Spirit comes and establishes a beachhead. In our hearts and the war begins. The old self-centered self, the old nature versus the divine nature of God. Praise be to God, he died on the cross. Praise be to God, he, he, he removed the sins from us so he could go deep within us and deal with the sin nature. He got the consequences of sin completely out of the way on the cross so he could come in and live in a clean place that he'd tidied and made well. And now he can go and live by his spirit in the very center of our lives and begin helping our wills. Philippians says he works in our wills to desire what's right and to follow through and choose it. Man, that's good news. Now I have a power that's stronger than my weakness. Amen. We have this ability now to choose not to think and act out of our self-centered nature. 
But that nature remains. Listen, what this means, here's the consequence in practice. What this means is that that our choices of what we think, the attitudes we allow in our minds, and the actions we take will determine how free we become of our self-centeredness and how much of the divine nature we acquire. I have to censor the thoughts that I think. When a particularly ungodly, selfish thought rises up, I have to say, whoa, wait a minute, what's that? Oh, that's my old nature. That's wrong. I am not going to let it stay. I'm going to take authority over it. I'm going to tell it to shut up and leave. Be silent. What we think about, what we take in, the choices we make. C.S. Lewis said, The Christian life is composed of millions of tiny choices, hundreds of them every day. He said, there's a beautiful block of granite for a sculpture. And you are the sculpture of your own life. And you are taking that hammer and that chisel. And you're just chipping away like Michelangelo would do to produce David. And every one of those chips becomes finer and finer as he gets closer to what it's actually supposed to look like. And every chip... Every hit of the hammer, C.S. Lewis said, either brings that sculpture closer to what it was designed to be or further away. We are the ones making those chips. We are forming decision by decision, tiny little tap by tiny little tap, all day long in a series of decisions. We, by those decisions, determine over a lifetime whether we end up with David or some kind of monster. Every choice we make is either strengthening the new nature or strengthening the old. And all these little choices add up to the kind of person we are. Really. One of the greatest mercies God can give you is to see the immensity of your own sin. Let me tell you my story on this subject. Some of you have heard this. A lot of you haven't. We are on right now, Shelley and I, this is both of our second marriages. And my first marriage, I got married to someone when I wasn't a Christian. Four years into the marriage, I became a Christian. I didn't just become a Christian, I became a lunatic Christian. Like 180 degrees, full on, as hard as I can go, this way, turned around by God, 180 degrees, full strength the other way. And my wife, my then wife, thought that was the biggest disaster that could have happened to her. In fact, she told me, she told me she married me because I was the person least likely in her life to become a pastor. Her father was a pastor in a very legalistic church and she was raised with the credo. The guiding principle for her life was what will people think? What a disaster. What a terrible way to raise children. So she saw me, the foul-mouthed, Christian-hating pig, as the perfect mate, least likely to turn into her father. Four years into the marriage, I turn into her father. 
She was furious with God. I mean, she was furious with God. So we had an absolutely terrible marriage. 20 years. Terrible. And when it finally came apart, and we separated, there was peace in our house. There was peace in the house for the first time in almost 20 years. I would walk in from the garage into the kitchen and I would not feel fear. It was strange. It was wonderful, but it was strange. So anyway, that marriage comes apart and I do everything that people tell you to do for a new wife. Pick the five things you most want in your wife and pray for those things in your new wife and claim them. So I decided I would do that. So I came up with five things. The first one, I, all, I recommend this to you universally for you young people. When you're looking for a husband or a wife, here's criteria number one. She will love God more than she loves me. If she doesn't love God more than she loves me, we're not going to make it. That was number one. Then there was another four. We get married, and she's all five of those things, by the way, in spades. In fact, the only reason I doubted whether I should marry her is because she was all five of those things, and I couldn't imagine God being that kind to me. I'm serious. I don't deserve her, so I should find a utilitarian wife that's sort of 30% on each one of those five, and, and I'll, just, I'll just have a, miserable, a less miserable future. That's what I did, man. I graded myself on the curve. And I graded God's goodness on the curve, too. And he gave me the little tiny end over here of excellence. And I didn't deserve it because I was just right in the middle or sliding towards the other side. <laughs> so anyway, we get married. I'm telling you, it's like Disneyland. It's just like dreams come true. I, I can't believe that I get to be with this person. This is so wonderful. Two months after we get married... My best friend in the church uh, stabs me in the back and attempts to take over the church. My mother dies. My father goes into a depression. And Shelley breaks out with boils all over her body. And the doctor's locally injecting them with cortisone to bring it under control. And that doesn't work. And they put her on this very, very powerful drug. Now there's a class action lawsuit, lawsuit out on it. And it destroys her intestines. So now she has intestinal trouble that she still suffers from today. I want you to try to understand my life. I've gone from hell to heaven and now it's turning into hell again two months later. This sickness has gotten the better of us. The church split. I go into a depression. I mean, it's just, I really wanted to die. And it goes on like this and her health just gets worse. And I find myself growing more and more bitter towards God. I'm thinking things like, how could you do this to me? How could you do this to me? After what I've been through, after all those years of suffering, and you give me this absolutely wonderful person, and two months later, you let it all be taken away again. And one day I was praying to him, I was really mad, and I said, 
How could you do this to me? You knew what I went through. I did what I was supposed to do. I prayed for the right person. I did all that. And then you gave her to me. And my life has fallen apart. And he said, what makes you think I gave her to you? What if I gave you to her? And in that moment, when he said that, I saw it. I have defined my marriage 100% in what's in it for me. That's all I care about. That's why I'm upset. And I don't know if you can get it because when the Lord peels back the veil and begins to show you the immensity of your sin and this selfishness, it was sickening. I mean, it just sickened me. It was a horrible experience. Listen, people tell you every experience with God is pleasant. No, it's not. He showed me the immensity of my selfishness and I was sickened by it. And I said, Oh God, what am I going to do? And this is what he said. He said, Well, I really like that. Well, the cool thing, he's just shown me the immensity of my sin and he's not condemning me. It's not like I want you to grovel. It's not like, you know, I'm punishing you. He just wanted me to see it. I said, he, I said what am I going to do? He said, well, you have two choices. Okay. He said, you, now that you've seen the measure of your selfishness in this marriage, you can spread it out and struggle with it for the next 30 years and have a mediocre marriage. Or you can face it right now for what it is and begin dealing with it right now for the enemy that it is. What do you want to do? He didn't tell me what to do. He said, what do you want to do? And I thought about it. He said, I want to face it right now. He said, okay, that's what we'll do. About two weeks later, Shelley came to me and said, I want you to go for counseling. What's the first reaction? <laughs> what's, the, what's the first reaction when your, when your spouse comes to you and says, I'd really like you to go for counseling. I don't need counseling. What are you talking about? She said, I really want you to go. Well, I had just faced my selfishness two weeks before. What am I going to say? I don't want to. I said, okay, I'll, all right, I'll go. So I go to this, it's like a sozo thing, which we're doing in the church now, sort of an inner healing thing. This is before they had that name. It's like 10 years ago. But uh, I go see this lady, and I'm familiar with what's supposed to happen because I've learned this prayer methodology. And what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to hear the truth from God and lies be revealed, and then he's going to say something wonderful to you, and you're going to feel like $150 billion, and you're going to just be so happy inside that you've been transformed by his goodness. That's how it's supposed to work. 
So I'm there with this woman and we're getting deep and, you know, we're getting to some places I really would rather not be. And, and she's saying, you know, we're getting down to the selfishness thing and uh, the problems in the marriage. And then she says, I'm going to pray that God shows you whatever he wants to show you. I said, oh, oh, I got my eyes are closed. Okay, I know what's supposed to happen next. Up comes from my memory my father at the dinner table with my mother and he's humiliating her. And he's, he was a really smart lawyer, so don't argue with him. You always lose. And he's railing on her for some mistake that she's made. And I'm sitting there in the vision as a child watching this go on between my father and my mother and I'm siding with him. in the vision. And I'm actually enjoying what he's doing to my mother. And this is really bad. And then I see a bunch of these incidents like a little movie going on where he did this over this problem and this problem and this problem and I'm taking his side in every single one of them. My mother was defenseless. She just got hit by a freight train and run over. That was what the marriage looked like. My whole life until she died. That's what the marriage looked like. And I'm thinking to myself, as I'm watching this movie, why am I siding with him? Why am I doing this? And the Lord says, you're trained in disrespect for women. This is a bad thing. That's not pleasant. And then I said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Now I'm expecting the load of love. I'm expecting the glory balls from heaven to come down and soak me in his presence. And I'll just be transformed into husband beautiful. (laughs) But instead of that experience, I see something way worse. Instead of him showing me the past which has brought me to who I am today, now the movie is the future with Shelley. And I see in this movie of my future me becoming more and more unkind, less and less patient, more arrogant, more controlling, and more proud as the years roll on. And it's like it's going really fast, and I see my future unfolding, and I am watching the creation of a monster. The person that I ended up at the end of this thing was horrible. It was revolting. And I saw it happening before my eyes. It was sickening. And I said, God, that can't happen. And he never said another word. I went home shaken. And the next day, Shelley said, something has changed in you. What happened at your counseling session? And I said, I don't want to talk about it. And she said, why not? And I said, because I'm afraid it won't last. I was scared straight. He didn't come in and change my decisions. The Holy Spirit didn't take me over like a robot. He didn't have to. All I saw was that if I keep behaving the way I'm behaving, the person that I will come become is evil. 
chipping, 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 decision by decision by decision. Do you get what I'm saying? That was almost 10 years ago. And you ask Shelley today what kind of husband I am. Ask her. She'll tell you. I'm not perfect. But I don't want to be like that. That's my motivation. It wasn't positive. It was completely negative. All I saw was the truth. All I saw was the immensity of my sin. I struggle with selfishness as much today as I did when I gave into it all the time. Well, I didn't struggle at all then. I just did it. I struggle with selfishness on a daily basis. People, that's okay. We're winning. But it's the knowledge of the selfishness that informs me and keeps on the front burner making godly decisions because I don't want to become like that. Well, you can say, well, Mark, that's a very negative way to live your life. No, it isn't. You know why? Because I'm in love with grace. Grace is the thing that forgives me for what I am and helps me not to be what's in me. Grace means more. I'm one of those people that when you talk about grace, I light right up. I love him so much because I get to see regularly just how much I need him. And slowly, I get to change. And that black dog inside is half the size he was before. And the white dog I've been feeding is twice as strong and twice as big. It's not going to end until I die. But, oh, God, this is better than the way I used to live. So two things I want you to take away from today. I want you to take away that it's a gift from God when he shows you your sin. As long as you understand it's immediately followed by his grace. Right? And secondly... His grace does not automatically turn you into Mother Teresa. You get to make free choices throughout the day to say no to selfishness and yes to loving God more and yes to loving others. And as you make those choices, you're chipping a David or you're painting a Mona Lisa. You're becoming the person God designed you to become. You with me? Let's close our eyes. Jesus, it's a really genuinely unpleasant experience when you show us what you see all the time. But when you do it with love like you always do, it's a good thing. It's a helpful thing. It's a necessary thing. God, if there's people here right now who've been taking your grace for granted, people for whom it's not that valuable and it's really not that amazing, I pray that you'd give them the mercy of seeing what they've been saved from and how much they need you. And God, if there's some of us that need to be scared straight, then I say, please do it. Truth is always a mercy, even when it hurts. 
Go to the core, Lord, and give us your truth. Holy Spirit, I'd like you to speak to, the, to every person in here right now. Holy Spirit, would you, just, would you just say whatever you want to say to them right now? I'm not expecting it'll be bad. I don't know what it'll be. I just, I just really feel in this moment that we should listen to you. You should just wait before you and just let you speak to us. Holy Spirit, please speak what we need to hear as individuals right now. Maybe, maybe a memory comes to mind or maybe a mental image pops up or maybe a Bible verse or maybe a phrase. Maybe he just says something. Pay attention. What's he communicating?